Hello and welcome to the menu Monocle's food and drink program. I am Marcus Hippi. In the next 30 minutes, we are in Singapore to meet a pastry chef who has just been ranked the best in Asia. I don't feel like I'm at my peak. I feel like there's still so much things that I can learn and I want to be so much better at so many things. And that's what's still making it fun and challenging. Then from one success story to another, Umut Eskanja tells us how he became one of Turkey's most successful restaurateurs. We made a combination of the land and it's modernized but it's not fusion because every single dish has the DNA. I should say we don't play with the DNA of the dishes. All that the week's headlines and a soundtrack recommendation ahead on this edition of the menu here on Monocle 24. First to Singapore. Myra Yeo is the pastry chef at Cloud Street, a one Michelin star fine dining restaurant in the city state. Earlier this year, the Asia's 50 best restaurants list named her Asia's best pastry chef of 2022. Monaco's Naomi Shu Elegant sat down with Myra to sample some of her creations and to hear what first got her into desserts. This is very embarrassing, but it was a Korean drama show that sort of started the whole thing. But I would say like it started the uh, idea to do into pastry, but what made me stay in it was actually how challenging it was. Like I already knew it was going to be like long hours and stuff like that because my parents they are in the FNB as well. They do uh, hawkers. So obviously like growing up, I know long hours is definitely a thing. But like when I was doing my internship and stuff, it was so fun because it was so difficult. And it felt like you can't see the end of like how much you can grow. And I think even now I still see it. I still feel that way. I don't feel like I'm at my peak. I feel like there's still so much things that I can learn and I want to be so much better at so many things. And that's what's still making it fun and challenging. So could you maybe describe a bit some of the dishes that you've created while you've been here? There's two that we have on our menu that I really like now. One is the Celtius. It's pretty much like variations of Celtius on a plate. We have the Celtius itself, we juice it and uh, from there it becomes a sorbet. We also serve it with a bit of a confit cubes of it inside as well. We confit with a bit of oil, vanilla and also salt. Then on you have a layer of green chili yogurt and when we serve to the guests at the table side we serve it with the juice of saltus itself and also finish off with a bit of vanilla oil and I'm adding a bit of a green chili gel into the confit saltus and we season with a bit of salt as well and then we'll finish off with this vanilla oil that's made in house The other dessert that we have, our current main dessert, you have a vanilla rose cream underneath. We serve it with salt baked sarac and also some deep fried capers. It's all covered with a sheet of rose pickled guava. On top, you have sarac ice cream to finish off. As you can tell, just from these two dishes, it's very different from what you can usually get from outside. Like a lot of textures that we have in a dessert, it's not from a crumble. It's not from like a, a mixture of sugar, butter and flour. It's from produce itself, vegetables or fruits, yeah. 
for listeners who maybe haven't been to Cloud Street or haven't been to Singapore, could you describe the dining concept at Cloud Street and maybe really briefly the dining industry in Singapore as well? I think Cloud Street is it is a restaurant with its own personality. You can't confine it to a cuisine. Like we try to tell guests, like it's Sri Lankan and、uh, Australian influence because of Chef Rishi's heritage. But to be honest, it's really just anything under the world. Like we find produce that we want to showcase, and then we find flavor pairings that are much less commonly used in the world. And like we try to make it our own, and that's really the fun part about. Cloud Street itself—it's a quirky and eccentric little place. You have like amazing decor, and when you come in, we don't follow a script, like for the staff, like for the front of house. Everyone speaks to you with their own personality, and guests can feel that. Like when they come in, there's so many times. Like it's so nice when you hear guests coming to you, and they go like, "Oh, it's so nice to come here." Like it's like coming into a family. It's like coming into a home, and people welcome you so nicely. And there is no script. Everyone say things differently. Everyone has their own personality, and Chef Rishi like encourages that as well. So I think that's very different for a lot of fine dining restaurants in Singapore. I would say 15 years ago, the dining scene in Singapore it was mostly just either French or Italian and Japanese. And I think maybe at that point of time we had Wild Rocket, which is like modern Singaporean food by Chef Willin. But now. It's so different. You have so many other restaurants in Singapore with their own personality as well, and every chef they are so good at what they do. For example, like Meta, like Chef Sun, he does this modern Korean food where you can't even find that sort of level, that sort of cuisine in Korea itself because that is his food, his cuisine. It's just that he's using like all his knowledge from before. To create something of his own, and this is also a movement that started like seven years ago when people were bringing in overseas chef to Singapore to open a restaurant. And now, I think in the past couple two three years, you see a lot more local chefs opening their own places now, and that's really cool as well. Myra Yeo of Michelin starred Cloud Street Restaurant there, speaking to Monaco's Naomi Shu Elegant. Turkish restaurateur Umut Özkanca has set out to change people's perceptions of what the food of his home country is. Gone are the likes of garlic mayo and kebabs. Instead, you are treated with some of the world's best ingredients and a fine dining take to the food from where Europe and Asia meet. A second-generation restaurateur, Umut runs a number of restaurants in Istanbul, and internationally, he is probably best known for being a founding partner of Ruya restaurants that you can come across in Dubai and London. We talked about his plans for elevating Turkish food's reputation and what the future may hold. When I met Umut at this Midori House Studio One. I mean, I started in my father's restaurant, like five, six-year-old, going around the tables, chairs, and my first job was at maybe like ten, eleven, sweeping the floors, like any other family business, restaurant business, I should say. Since I was twelve, thirteen, I started to work in the kitchen, 
when I was 15, I was going to the fish market, vegetable market, and then on my, obviously, like vacation days, working for my dad. And my dad used to bring chefs from New York that time. New York was the food capital. Now, for me, it's London now, but this is 25, 30 years ago. So I used to be the translator for the chefs, too. So I get to work with a lot of good chefs from New York. Then I went to boarding school, Switzerland, then Boston, studied finance, economics, then French Culinary Institute in New York. 2000, the, the chance to live in New York and work in New York and go to one of the top culinary arts schools in the world at that time. And I moved back to Istanbul when I was 23 and convinced my dad to open my first restaurant as a chef owner. So this has been a long time now, but uh, and it was really successful. And I opened more restaurants, and but I always had my dream to do something from my part of the world and to do it global, which I say, like to compete in the Champions League outside of Turkey. Because we are so, as a, when you look at the history of the land, it's where the first civilization started, accumulation of cultures, Silk Road, different empires, and now it's the modern Turkish Republic. So it's basically the cuisine. You cannot, I don't call it Turkish, I call it Anatolian, because Anatolia is the name of the land. And in the old Greek, it means where the sun rises, because it was on the other side of Greece. As I said, the, all the dishes are accumulation of all those centuries and cultures and travel and trade. And, and I say, OK, why not? Like the French did, the Italian did, the Japanese, the Chinese and then the Peruvians did. I said, why shouldn't we do it in a different level? As I said, because our type of food is uh, really undergraded. And uh, they say, OK, Turkish food is about or Anatolian food is about garlic mayo with donut, which we don't eat garlic mayo in Turkey. Anyway, so basically I put regional dishes, not fusion, but put the makeup or modernized it, I should say, and made it more acceptable by the international palate. And that's how we are started and we are growing. Why is it that Turkish food, as you mentioned, doesn't have the appreciation it would deserve? International, I think it's getting there. I mean, when you look at the Istanbul scene now, we have amazing restaurants. And first time uh, Michelin, uh, actually, they rated Turkey scene. And I think they're going to be announced this October, so we are going to have some Michelin-style restaurants. And it's all about marketing, and it's growing, and we should, as I said, this has examples with the Italians coming to England, to America, in the, like in the 30s. They maybe started as also as low food, and now, you know, Michelin-style Italian restaurants in New York and in London. And actually, we stepped out of the country a bit later than them, so I think more restaurants like we are going to be opening in London and uh, which will bring also what we have to the global arena that what we are actually really made of. And these are, as I said, just the beginning and it's going to be a, a good journey, I should say. I liked it how you said earlier that already when you were quite young you decided that you want to compete in the championships yeah. outside of Turkey in the future. How much more is there left to be done? What is needed at the moment? I think, as I said now, like we are after London, Mayfair, London, and uh, we have amazing reviews. Obviously, there was a pandemic period for everybody, but we signed some good deals. And we are opening before the World Cup in Doha in one of the best hotels, actually. So you're talking about your restaurants, yeah, Ria, Ria, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then it's going to be Cannes Carlton Hotel. We signed with Riyadh, and we have a good, actually, for the next two years, we're almost fully booked. There's the Oman. And we are almost chasing a couple of deals in south of Europe. But for the cuisine, for the Turkish cuisine, there is also Salt Bay, Nusret. It's an amazing brand. 
that came out from Turkey. It's an amazing brand, but it's got very... It depends which side of the coin you're looking very at. Very conflicting <laughs> reviews, yeah. Yeah, so, but at the end of the day, is it a success? It's a success. I mean... Can't uh, deny that. Yeah, yeah. But when we look at it, as I said, in Mayfair, Knightsbridge, and New York, more brands are going to be opening like Ria. And that will be the actually the success, not on my behalf, but the success of the cuisine and the marketing of our land is through actually culinary, which... I'm not going to be humble on that. We are stronger than anybody else, I should say, because when you look at it in detail, there's thousands of recipes, and kebab donor is not even 1% of the cuisine. Exactly. I mean, when I'm in Istanbul, I donor maybe once a month, kebab once a month. So this is what's the part of kebab and donor in our culture is that much, literally. So Ruya is the restaurant chain that is gradually spreading to new locations yeah. around the world. What have been your guiding principles when looking at the menu? What are aspects of the Turkish culinary culture do you want to emphasize? Actually, we have a good amount of diversity. We, when we create the menu, we pick and choose from different regions. Turkey has seven different regions, and seven different regions have totally different climate, totally different folklore, totally different music, dance, and cuisine because of the weather is totally different too. And also the historical backgrounds are different. So we try to, it's like a nice mosaic, we should say, and we try to pick from every single region. And then additional to that, the imperial cuisine, and then more important than that, the grandmother's cuisine. So we try to make a nice combination of also when you come, if you're a vegetarian, there's 30% of the menu is vegetarian, which is what we eat actually back, back home. As I said, we don't eat only kebabs. But if you want to eat a kebab, there's only one dish of kebab. So there's I'm origin from north of Turkey, from Black Sea. There's Black Sea dishes. It's all fish, butter, pides, and then Aegean is all more like herbs, vegetables. Central is slow cooking. And eastern part is, as I said, more meat-oriented kebab. So we made a combination of the land and as i said is modernized but it's not fusion because every single dish has the dna i should say we don't play with the dna of the dishes what should people taste what are the things you think people may not know that well they should definitely try i mean from the top sellers i think the start of we have the smoked eggplant puree it's a beautiful dish light we have the cheese pide with egg yolk which is a dish from my hometown and it's from the roman times actually roman empire times we have a dish, a slow-cooked cash cake, which is another thousand-year-old dish that's under the UNESCO protection, and it's a celebration dish from Central Park. I mean, it's almost like a barley risotto, I should say. And in desserts, we have the helva ice cream, we have the hazelnut baklava, and if you want to eat fish, we have seasonal fish. When it's the season, we do salt fish, sometimes we do sea bass. So basically, even if you're... I mean, you have to come to the restaurant maybe three, four times in order to finish... Your journey, I should say. How conservative are the Turkish people, by the way, when it comes to food? Are they willing uh, to join you? Things? Actually, a lot. No, no. I mean, uh, conservative. We are. I mean, even though, like, we are, we are here. Maybe ten percent of our customers are Turkish. So uh, it's more like ninety percent is international. I should say. We have specialty restaurants, and as I said, the food is your pride. And uh, if you, let's say, want to eat donor in Turkey, you just go to a specialty donor store where you don't have anything else. If you want to go to have fish, only fish restaurants. So we have kebab. When you go to a kebab restaurant, you don't eat donor. You just have kebab. So it's specialized restaurants we have, I should say. So people are a bit conservative, but it's changing compared to uh, 15, 20 years ago. We are getting a bit more open-minded with international cuisines. Umut Eskanja there. He is the founding partner of Ruya Restaurants.
Up next, the week's food and drink headlines. Here is Monocle's Lillian Fawcett. Restaurants in Shanghai have reopened their doors to diners this week as China's biggest city slowly relaxes COVID restrictions. Businesses can now serve customers at 50 to 70% of total capacity. It comes as a relief to the hospitality industry after a strict two-month lockdown in the city. Singapore has approved imports of chicken from Indonesia after its biggest poultry supplier banned exports last month. Malaysia had provided a third of the city-state's chicken, but banned foreign sales in a bid to ease inflation at home. The move raised concern of a price rise on Singapore's unofficial national dish, chicken and rice. France will ban meat-related words like sausage and steak from being used on plant-based alternatives. The regulation is the first of its kind in the European Union, but will only apply to food made in France. The country's regulator called for the same rule across the EU, but the bloc rejected a similar proposal in 2020. A distillery in the US state of New Hampshire is using an invasive crab species as a new flavour in its whisky. Tamworth Distilling invented the drink after learning how the non-native species had decimated the region's marine ecosystem. The whisky is called Crab Trapper and is said to have notes of maple and vanilla oak. Thanks Lillian, you are with The Menu. Finally, one of the most interesting cookbook releases in recent weeks or months has been Eleanor Ford's new book, The Nutmeg Trail. The release explains how centuries of spice trading have changed not only the world's cuisine, but also history. I met Eleanor a bit earlier. I wanted to write about the story of spice, and there were so many different angles I could come at it from. On the one hand, there's the history and the tales behind spices, which completely fascinated me, and that forms one part of the book. The other part was how to use spices best in cooking, and how these ingredients, which most people have in their kitchens, but hold a little mystique even today, can be layered, can be combined, can be blended in cooking to create really exciting and diverse results. There are so many stories in this book about the role spices have played in human history. And as you actually do write, you say that you've been, first of all, working as a culinary detective. But you also say that spices have brought humans great pleasure and health, but also they have also aroused greed and barbarity. What do you think this world would be like if we hadn't been enjoying spice that much? Well, the extraordinary thing about spices is they're one of the first goods that were traded internationally. So they started the trading trails, the maritime trading trails, which created the spice routes. And then there were later overland trails that linked the East and the West. It really sowed the seeds for globalisation. As we get towards the 16th, 17th century and the European players enter the market, it became this time of greed, of war, of conquest, as people wanted to control the spice trade. So really, I think that so many paths of the world we live in today and the interconnectivity were laid by the spice trade that started 4,000 years ago and has continued to this day. I think it's a good reminder to realise how expensive spices were in the past, and that's not even that long time ago. And nutmeg is something you use as a great example of something that was very hard to get a hold of and something that came from very far away. Well, nutmeg was one of the spices that 
did the longest journey because it came from only a few small islands in the far reaches of Indonesia and it travelled across Asia and all the way to Europe. So it had created a very long journey and it was combined so much in different cuisines across the world en route. And by the time it got to Europe, it was this mystical, exciting object that could be used as a show of refinement. People used to carry around their own silver nutmeg grater as a show of standing. Because if you could grate a nutmeg over your food at the table, it was a show of your own wealth. Any other similar examples of spices that had a very special role? Well, I think so many spices were used not only in food, but in medicines and in worship. You would have spices being burnt as incense in churches and in temples as a way of showing great reverence that you'd be using these objects. And in medicine, in early days of medicine, spices were a key ingredient. Because they were so expensive, so rare, almost so otherworldly, it felt that they held great powers. Tell me about the research you conducted for this book when you wanted to have a closer look at where these spices came from and what the stories were from the past. Well, usually when I write books, my travel happens for the research. and I spend a lot of time travelling. This was written during the coronavirus years. So I went much more into the history, into the archives, reading about spices in history and then looking at spice use today. So these are countries I've travelled a lot in the past as I work my way across the Indian Ocean, the original cradle of spice. And I went back to look at how spices are used and to try and think if I could see links, links of flavours, links of ingredients and what clues these could give us about how ideas and recipes had travelled. How easy was it to find those links? Surprisingly, so many. The more you look into it, there is such a web of recipes and you will find through linguistic clues or through clues in taste links across very distant seas. If you trace something like kebabs you can see their movement across the world and they really went with Arab spice traders and then took on such different forms. So you've got this idea that started as a sort of piece of meat on a stick and then as it goes to new lands you get completely different flavour profiles. By the time you reach Malaysia, Thailand, Indonesia you've transformed into satay and you've taken on the local fresh spices, the lemongrass, the turmeric. So it's a very different product and it's hard almost to see the journey that it's come, but there is this link across the world of east to west. How did those links work in practice? It wasn't even only about taking spices from one place to another. I would imagine that something else came along as well, culture for example. Certainly. I think that when we had people moving across the seas and stopping in trading ports because you'd wait for the sea winds to change, there people come together, they collect, they share ideas, and with that you get a movement of religion, a movement of art. It's this peaceful exchange that I find interesting. Of course we have the conquerors, the conquest that brought a lot of change, but when you've got traders just moving and stopping and sharing ideas and forming these kind of cosmopolitan hubs across the world, across periods of history, you get an interesting fusion in food and ideas of all sorts. Do you think you see the world differently now after going through that research period and learning about all this? Well, I certainly think I've always liked to look at using flavour as a way to look at the world and seeing how flavours travel and how they blend. But yes, it's made me all the more curious for what other links we can find. And particularly when you look at a country's 
flavour profiles, the flavours that they lean towards. Why? What's caused that? I wonder what's happened ever since. Obviously, we talked about already how spices used to be very expensive and they were used as status symbols and so forth. What has accessibility done to all that? Nowadays, you just need to go to your local grocery store and you can find so many different spices. Do you think that has changed something about the way we understand spices and how we use them? Absolutely. I think that spices huge value early on. The reason that it fell away is because they became more accessible, more attainable. And once something you can get easily, it no longer holds that rarity, that excitement. But there are a few lingering reminders of that, one of which is vanilla pods, which are becoming more and more expensive, and saffron, which still has to be harvested by hand at dawn from the stamens of crocus flowers that are only available for a few weeks a year. So that still today has got more value than its weight in gold. So that's a sort of reminder of times when spices held this power over us. But even today when they are so accessible and we all have access to them, I think there is something special, that old lure about food that has a spice taste. Absolutely. And talking about those memories and the past, are there some spices we have simply lost? Yes, absolutely. There are some that have fallen out of favour and that at least in the West, we don't use as much as we did. For instance, grains of paradise were hugely well used in the medieval times. They were marketed as such rather cleverly, this idea of a grain of paradise, something that's travelled a great journey. And now they are an interesting spice, but not used so much. And others, like long pepper, also used to be much more common than it is now. And this is a kind of extended, elongated peppercorn that's got an almost violety aroma. More interesting, perhaps, than black pepper, yet it's fallen behind. Might these be some of the spices you would recommend us to try? Or do you have any other favourites that are lesser known? Well, I think it's wonderful to try lesser known spices. It's fun to have them in your collection. But what I've tried to do largely in these recipes is show how we can use the spices of every day to their best effect. Because I want the recipes to be accessible and easy for everyone to play with. And just seeing how you can get the most out of the spices you already have in your cupboard. But also, yes, I've listed some esoteric ones to look out for and to experiment with. Recipes, I wanted to talk about them next as a matter of fact. Tell me about the criteria, how you decided what to include in the book and what to leave out. It was so impossible. I was dealing with such a wide scope. And so I was looking for recipes that had two criteria. One, I was looking for recipes that showed this movement of spices and ideas that came from these trading hubs that showed a crossover or demonstrated something there. Or otherwise, I was just looking for recipes that are easy for a home cook and really demonstrate the different flavours of spice. I've divided the chapters up according to flavour profile. So we've got some chapters that are about earthy spices, others that are about fragrant and floral, others that go into heat, so that you can see the different methods, the techniques and the different flavours you can use to very different effect. I'd like to hear some recommendations maybe from you basing on this book and all those recipes. Are there some spices, first of all, we should try? I know you gave some recommendations already, but are there any methods for using spices or any particular dishes that people should try that you think would actually help people discover something really new and interesting? Gosh, well, I think so much about cooking with spices is working out how to layer different flavours. And so very often with a recipe you will start with a spice foundation, which kind of layered the base. If you're cooking a dish like 
a dal from India, you would want to cook the spices into the base. So you would temper them in oil, sizzling them, bringing out the heat. Spices flavors are usually oil soluble rather than water soluble. So you need that time to develop them and bring them out, tease them out with the heat. So you might lay a foundation of spices, then put in your main ingredients, and then towards the end you might introduce a finishing spice. Now if we're going back to dal, this could be something like a garam masala, which is a already cooked blend that you use in small quantities of a warming spice. Or it could be something like introducing a tarka, which is again sizzling spices in oil and then adding it towards the end of the cooking, so that you're bookending the front and the back of a recipe with spices. That's a really interesting point. I'm wondering, how has your home cooking changed after you have finished this work? Are you using any new tricks nowadays or any new spices? <laughs> I feel like my cooking is always eclectic and experimental and I'm always looking for new dishes to excite. So I feel like I found plenty of new dishes in this book and I have had the wonderful opportunity to showcase lots of dishes that I've been cooking for years and really loved Eleanor Ford there, and her book The Nutmeg Trail is out now. And that's all for this edition of The Menu. Remember that we are back with a new episode again on Friday at 2000 London time. That's at midday if you're listening in Los Angeles. Meanwhile, do check out our menu spin-off show Food Neighbourhoods for great recipes. And obviously, you will find many more reports on great hospitality from the brand new edition of Monocle magazine. This show was edited and mixed by David Stevens and by Marcus Hippi. Once again, we finish this programme with a dinner soundtrack recommendation. Here is Pongo with Tambulaya. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>